thing and then they yeah, release yeah, it yeah. to the world without wah, wah. Um, right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's how we get big for her boys and girls <laughs> right exactly right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just made a sad trombone noise on a podcast. Hello and welcome to This Should Work, session 15, an interview with Helen Lee. Helen is the maker of the Minimoo Glove, a, a really cool DIY instrument um, that, uh, that is, is actually getting released very soon. Um, and also the author behind The Crafty Kid's Guide to DIY Electronics. Uh, Helen does all sorts of interesting things, and so I wanted to talk with her about the process behind um, how she makes things, as well as uh, the process behind how she educates others, because she's also an educator. As always, thanks for listening to This Should Work. If you enjoy the show and... uh, have been listening for a while make sure you subscribe if you haven't already itunes soundcloud all those other places and if uh if you're really enjoying it make sure you share it with somebody else share the love okay well without further ado here's session 15 this should work with helen lee there we go okay so this is this should work uh session 15 with helen lee did i pronounce that correctly you did yes Excellent. And um, we're here to talk about all sorts of fun things. Helen is the creator of the Minimoo instrument and many other um, interesting instruments. You've got a book coming out called The Crafty Kid's Guide to DIY Electronics with uh, McGraw-Hill this week, it sounds like. Yes. Um, That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And and you've you've done all sorts of other cool stuff that we're going to talk about today as well. Uh, Did I miss anything? Anything that you want to plug at the front? Um, that'll do for now. I don't want to sound too baseball. Excellent. That'll I am British. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're in Berlin. But you're in Berlin. I am in Berlin. British person in Berlin. I'm a, a Brexit refugee. All right. So Berlin, home of the the oldest hackerspace, and I saw which I am were... a member of. Yes, I'm a member of CBase. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yes. How, how long How long have you been a member? Um, since last week. Um, mm. Yes. I'm a member of another lab as well called Motion Lab. There's loads of really, really great hacker spaces and maker spaces in Berlin. Like space is cheap here and there's lots of empty warehouses for people to fill with cool things. So yeah, it's just a great place for hackers. Cool. Congratulations on becoming a, a member of, you know, the, the the space that inspired a lot of other people, including, you know, the the maker spaces that we started out here. So Absolutely. That's... It's it's an amazing place to be part of. So that's, um, oh, we're going to have to talk about that too. Okay, so, um, you know, one of the, the ways that we, uh, that I like to start this, this whole thing out is by talking a little bit about, um, you know, you do all these other cool things for, for other people, um, but, you know, a lot of makers, they have their own fun personal projects that they don't tell a lot of people about because they're for themselves. Um, and so one of the ways I like to get started is just by, by probing a little bit into, you know, what it is that you're currently working on, tinkering with, that's, that's not for anybody else necessarily, although maybe it could become later on, but, but something that, that you're working on that's, that's kind of uh, private, something for you. Um, okay, so I actually do have a project that is right in front of me on my kitchen table at the moment. Um, and it's for my sister as her Christmas present. So I hope she's not going to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's a belt, um, like a, um, a, a wearable belt, obviously wearable, it's a belt. 
Um, and it's uh, made of a circuit playground express and then a bunch of sewable neopixels and an accelerometer. Um, and it's she's actually pregnant with her first child and I'm going home to see her at Christmas. And it's um, I programmed it so that when the baby kicks, the belt lights up with um, animations. Um, so it's kind of visualizing the movement of the baby, which is really cute. And I can't wait to be an aunt. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Do you do, you do a lot of, um, you know, when you, when, when you do gifting, do you do a lot of uh, made gifts uh, rather than purchasing things? Or is this like a, a oh, special yeah. kind of a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't tend to buy a lot of presents. Like, I'll, I'll make one special thing or give, like, really nice food. Um, I, I don't like buying things. I mean, once you get to a certain age, you basically have everything you need, don't you? You don't you don't need endless tats to fill your life with. And plus, I move a lot, so, you know, I tend to keep it light. Um, yeah. And, and also, when I have family and friends in so many different countries, um, you don't want to fill up your bag with presents when you see everybody. So it's just nice to... <laughs> spend time with people or make something with them or share food with them instead of like, you know, buying lots of consumerist nonsense. What's interesting, you know, a connection that I'm kind of drawing is, you know, I I see a lot of, we, you know, out here in Chicago, um, I do a lot of classes, uh, you know, geared towards uh, younger kids who are just getting into, I mean, well, not just getting into, they're always making, but, um, you know, they're just getting into the concepts of, of themselves as, as people who make things. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they're also doing things where it's not making something for themselves. It's always for, for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know if that's like a, you know, is that a thing that, that you've, that, that's, you know, carried through for you um, that you've, you know, you kind of always focus on, uh, not always focus on, but you know, a lot of your work is geared towards making things for, for other people. It seems certainly like a lot of what you do is, is geared for that, toward that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, in the heart of me, I'm a teacher. So a lot of the projects that I make are specifically designed to help other people learn something or um, help other people create a, a new object. I mean, I do make things for myself. I mean, I make a lot of instruments, um, both analog and digital. I like making little synthesizers. Um, I like making weird noises, essentially, um, whether that's with, you know, some nails and a bit of string and a picker, or whether that's, you know, soldering um, a synth. I actually just made a synth, uh, the, the new synth that's out by um, Mitch Altman, the RG Touch, and that's been playing with that and putting that through some loop pedals and that's that's great fun so i'd say yeah most of the things i make for myself are noise related um um, but yeah all the other stuff is either teaching related or kind of for other people i mean i I don't like to make things kind of um techie for the sake of things you know um Mm. so i don't like just bang neopixels on everything you know um, as much as as much as I love NeoPixels, it's kind of for, for me. Um, it's kind of like a bit over. You know, everything lights up. No, it doesn't need to. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel the I feel the same way with um. You know, there's this whole thing called uh, Badge Life, which you <sighs> might be familiar with if you don't know even talk to me about Badge Life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't see the point of it, but you know. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. A lot of no, oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. I did actually, actually, you know, though, I did, um, I, I do tell a lie. I've got a couple of badges that I absolutely love. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I mean, I don't need, a, I don't need five badges a year from going to every single hacker conference. You know, it doesn't, it seems kind of wasteful to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's interesting because um, they, they have the potential to be an, inter- an mm. avenue for, mm. for designing toys and um, playful things, but a lot of them end up being, you know, like the NeoPixel or the, the light up kind of. Well, they um, do like 500 different things, but none of them well. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm talking to my students, um, so I, I teach quite a, a wide range of people. Like I've, I've taught down to primary school, what you'd call like, I guess, uh, let's, let's give it ages. Um, I, I've taught, you know, I teach from eight years old upwards all the way to a postgraduate level. I teach um, a master's module on um, hacking and music technology. Um, but throughout that whole range of ages, one of the biggest things I tell my students is to really focus on the functionality of the object and actually maybe just start with one input and one output. You know, with just one thing in, one input, one output, you can create some really magical things. And by concentrating on the creativity, the design, the arts, the function of it, I think, you know, you can have more purposeful, uh, more useful and more beautiful electronic objects rather than, you know, throwing 50 things at it and seeing what sticks. I have a lovely mm. badge, actually. It's really beautifully designed, and it's just um, it's kind of motion-sensitive, and it's a little hot, um, and then when you touch it or when you move, um, it beats. And I just think it's such a beautiful object, um, and it's just been so cleverly designed. It, it doesn't really do that much. I mean, it doesn't have a mobile phone in it. It doesn't have Bluetooth, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, mm. I really love it. It's something that stands out to me in terms of its design and in terms of, you know, it does what it does. I like it. Mm. <laughs> So you've got you've got these projects that you're working on, um, you know, more, more publicly. These musical instruments. You, mm-hmm. you you talked as well about some of these these things that you're doing privately, and then you teach these classes, like you're saying, for eight eight all the way up to post grad level. Um, mm-hmm. And you're you're teaching uh, your teaching process um, uh, there in in those classes. I'm assuming the process of designing and developing something, and I'm assuming you follow some kind of process when you're making the your you know your things as well. And, yeah, of and, course. And what, one of the things that's really interesting to me about about both of those is, um, at some point you have to begin somewhere, mm. and um, I I wonder what is it what is it that drives the where's the somewhere that you begin when you're working on your personal things, and then how do you how do you transfer that over to to teaching practice and find help people find their their place to begin too. Um, well, let's take an example of something I worked on earlier this year. Um, I wrote a, actually, I think the first um, national curriculum on physical computing um, for the um, Oman um, Royal Court. It went out to all the school children um, that kind of get, became part of this course, which was an amazing opportunity. And, back, and I did a huge course on Arduino. Is that about Arduino? But actually, about a third of the entire course um, I did on design thinking and design. Um, and what the process is for that. Um, working in hardware, you often see people who don't really make some cool things, but they don't really put that much thought into who it's for, what it's supposed to do, um, where it's supposed to go afterwards. You know, I think if you put a little bit of design into it, um, you can start from there, and then you can start thinking, okay, in terms of um, what do I want it to do? Who am I going to make it for? And then how can I realize my dream? How can I realize my ambition? Um, I think that when when you combine two um, two genres of thought, you can actually get um, a much richer um, ecosystem than if you just if you're just a straight electrical engineer um, or just a straight designer. But if you kind of 
combine those two things, you can create some really cool products and some some really worthwhile things. Um, so I kind of encourage that. Um, and I also like um, like to encourage people to think simply at first. Um, I often use um, even if, if from from the eight years old up to you know my twenty five year old post grads. Um, I'll encourage them to start dissecting and noticing things in a real world, um, especially when you're new to electronics. You don't. One of the most important things to me is to demystify technology, right? To look at something and think, okay, how is that working? What is the sensor in this? What is the output in this? How could I make this work? So I'll take my students often to places with mechanical objects and I'll encourage them to imagine how it might be made and how they might be able to replicate it. So you look at other people's work, you think, okay, cool, how could I do that? That's very much like a maker, hacker focus. Um, And then you start to think, okay, cool, so using that knowledge, what else could I make? How could I tweak this? How could I change this input for this input or this output for that output? And then what kind of thing could I create with that? So that that kind of structure, I find, really works to spark the imagination of my students. Um, but also give them that kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know this as an educator, like sometimes you might be, you might have one child or one student that is like incredibly technically capable, right? Or one student that's got incredible creative thought. So in order to make the, the really technical child um, be able to think creatively, you're actually going to have to do quite a bit of work um, and, and help them, kind of guide them through that process. Yeah. Um, and then once they get to the technical bit, they can, you know, go off and, and fly. And, but the opposite way around for the person who's more kind of creatively inclined. Um, so having a fairly clear framework and, f- and a series of stepping stones, so you kind of explain what each of the things are so they don't get stuck um, and they don't end up siloed and end up separated from each other. Um, that's, that's how I tend to work. I mean... I would say that it's not it's not like a completely structured framework. I do tend to, particularly in smaller classes, just kind of play it by ear a little bit. But yeah, yeah I mean, just teaching them to watch, teaching them to look, teaching them to notice what things are made of and then kind of deconstruct um, and then kind of think creatively. That's That would be my typical approach. Well, you oh. said <laughs> yeah. a lot of things <laughs> in it that are, that are interesting. Oh, did I interrupt you? Did you no, 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 okay. no, it's fine. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you said, I mean, there are a lot of things that you said in there that, that I, I find really interesting, um, you know, and it, it seems like uh, I don't know if any of the the, um, the work that you do is informed by uh, Vygotsky and the, the zone, zone of proximal development. But it seems like whether or not <laughs> it is, it, you know, a lot of people who I speak with kind of have very similar um you know, there are very similar threads that run through the way that they teach and think about things and, and meeting students kind of where they're at mm-hmm. rather than teaching mm-hmm. them all in one, um, you know, one template kind of way. Um, what You said a couple of things in, in there that are really interesting to me, and I, I hope I'm not misinterpreting them, but um, one of the things that seems important to you and this is just from from reading some of your work as well, but but listening to you now, um, is kind of um, synthesizing, um, getting out into the the real world and synthesizing mm-hmm. seemingly disparate you know fields or or forms of knowledge, um, and and I wonder the, you know the first thing that I want to touch on real quick is what is it about synthesizing that knowledge and getting out into real space. Um, that is important to the design and and craft and creative process uh, that you can't get, you know, in 
in the classroom um, or or in you know the teaching space that you're at is is there some importance to that? I'm not sure if I'm misinterpreting that. Or... No, that's absolutely, that's very astute of you. I mean, actually, before I started working in quote-unquote maker education um, and doing more um, of the kind of electronic stuff that I'm now doing, um, I was part of a, a, a geography collective. We were a, a bunch of teachers and activists who were really interested in um, learning through play and, um, and specifically learning outside the classroom. Um, and kind of child-led learning as well. Um, and yeah, it's been a common theme throughout my entire body of work um, over the last uh, what, decade and a half, I suppose, um, that, um, yeah, I think you absolutely can um, enrich your learning by leaving the classroom, by speaking to other people, by um, by especially in academia as well, there is this kind of tendency to kind of close in on yourself and only talk to other academics. But actually, you know, often the best points of view are outside of academia. Um, you know, it's, especially when you're talking about design and, you, you know, you, you need some kind of, um, you need real world experience. And I also find that, um, and, and again, this is throughout, you know, from age eight upwards, um, that, Kids are really, kids and students are really inspired by real world practitioners and real world examples. And mm-hmm. actually, this is one of the reasons, this is, this is why I, um, I designed the, the mini moo. So, um, for your listeners that aren't familiar with it, um, the mini moo is a gesture sensing musical instrument glove that children mm-hmm. make wire and code themselves um, it's kind of cute it's based on chip tune and it brings together craft electronics and code um, and it's a really open-ended system anyway so this glove is based on the Mimu glove which is a very fancy pants um, instrument that was designed by the um, artist and musician Imogen Heap and her team in London um, it's like a 2,000 pound glove it's very expensive it's you know you know, it's it's been on tour with Ariana Grande on her last tour, so it's like proper, you know, like high level instrument. Um, and but I was I was watching her TED talk, and I was like, oh wow, this is really cool. Like I could really see myself using this as an example in the classroom. So I, I often like to use real world technology and deconstruct it, as we were talking about earlier, um, and, and also to kind of because it really inspires people, right? I mean, you, right. you tell you tell a kid about. I don't know, yet another line-following robot, and they're just going to, like, roll their eyes. But if you show, show them a clip of Ariana Grande, like, doing live vocoder stuff by flicking her fingers, they're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, and those are the moments that I want in my classroom. I don't want people going, but why? I want people going, oh, my God, how can I make it? So um, so I was just, um, I was really inspired by this, this glove that I saw on YouTube. And um, I... I basically messaged her through a mutual friend um, that I know in the London music tech scene and was like, hey, um, hey, how would you feel about me um, doing a DIY version of your glove um, to teach kids about music technology? Um, and she was like, that sounds amazing. Let's meet for coffee. And by the end of our coffee date, um, she'd asked me to create her a prototype um, for her next event, which happened to be in 10 days. So obviously I was like, Oh my god! I have to make a prototype of this thing in ten days, and I have to. Yeah, so I was like, okay, fine. Uh, I did it, and it was great. Um, I had a really nice time doing it, and it worked. Um, and 
you know, everybody really liked it and it was great. But basically the, the reaction I've had to that in classrooms because of the Ariana Grande hook and because of the real glove, um, they can see the purpose of what they're doing and they can see the creativity of it. Like I've never, ever, I've taught it to hundreds of kids now. We've made hundreds of these gloves in classrooms and it, it's actually going to be released as a product this week which is slightly terrifying. Right. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, through P. Marini and I think probably some US distributors as well. But um, yeah, anyway, um, the the effect of it has been such that I, I've ne- like it's, it's been the best workshop and the best teaching thing that I've ever done. Like I've never had a single person no board. I've, I've never had someone fail. They just keep going because they're just so inspired by the context of it. And that's something that that's something that I've always found throughout my life is context is king and purpose is so important. I mean, particularly if you're trying to reach um, groups that aren't naturally turned on by the tech aspect of it. If you put it, I mean, if we're talking, you know, girls in particular, um, if if you put if you give a if you give a um, you know someone a a microcontroller and just say, hey, you can make this LED blink on and off like some people are gonna be like yes that's amazing but some people are gonna be like well why though because this isn't very interesting um so by providing something around the learning um you know project based obviously project based learning um i think you're a lot more successful with a lot more of a class like you don't lose people um which is really important as a teacher particularly if you're in like a public school and you've got like 35 kids in your classroom and it's hectic and you know, you've got some kids with very different abilities, you know, to, the ability to have like a low floor, high ceiling project is so important. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what's interesting there is that, you know, I know you make a lot of things, but a lot of your work is around um, musical instruments. Mm-hmm. And I, I it, when you talk about context, is is music a primary context for you? Is that a kind of a way that an insertion point that you use to connect people to um, making technology? And what what is it about music that um, that that you think you're you're drawn to with a lot of the work that you do? Um, well, partially it's personal. You know, like I've got a lot of instruments in my home, and I'm a you know a, a classically trained singer in my youth. Um, so it's something that I know and it's something that I love. Um, but to me, like music is universal, right? Like mm-hmm. making noise, whether it's dragging sticks along a railing or making bleeps and bleeps on a synthesizer or, you know, like making terrible noises with a trumpet so that your parents hate you. You know, it's just something that's joyful. It's innate in humanity, and particularly when you're talking about kids. There's no kid that doesn't like to bash on a xylophone. You know, it's it's something that's connects us, I think, music. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I love music and I love making music. <laughs> um <laughs> even though I'm not that amazing at it. Um like it's yeah, to me, it's it's just it's just kind of my love, um, and and I just see it working in classrooms. Um, yeah. You know, I, I just see it working. Um, it just gets reinforced, and also it brings me joy, and it brings other people joy as well. Like the, the smile that I see on you know the kids' faces when they make 
they hack their headphones and then they make their glove and they like make it work for the first time. Like it's just absolutely infectious. I mean, you can't not want to go back for more of that. You know, I mean, I've taught DIY electric guitars up and down the country as well. That's great fun. Like giving a little kid a, a massive hammer is always hilarious. Um, <laughs> like, um, and I've made like DIY breadboard synthesizers as well. Like once I, I made one live on the BBC, which was pretty funny. Um, but but like I, I just find that when I do these music based makes, a I really enjoy them, and b just people get it. People get it. You know, and it's a nice analogy as well. You know, like like there's so much good physics in music, so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and so much good electronics as well. You make a breadboard synthesizer, and you're like, bam, here you go. You understand oscillation because you can hear it. You know, it it right. makes it tangible, right? Yeah, I think it's really cool too because you're 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 teaching them to make a tool rather than a. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, right? It's, yeah. it's an instrument, it's a tool in some ways, and. It's a creative tool, but it's mm. it's not a blinky LED. It's no. a thing that you can um, that you can make other things with. You're you're teaching them to make something exactly. that you know, it's like a platform. It's not that you make it and that's the end. You know, right. that's something that's really important to me. I mean, we were talking earlier a little bit about um, the low floor, high ceiling thing, right? Mm. So actually, the first piece of code that I teach kids on this mini Moogle is like just it's just two lines. It's just two lines. Um, it's super easy and. You know, but but then you can actually go on to do a lot of stuff. You can actually create music on it, but you can also like I've written some code. I haven't released it yet, but I've written the code um, that allows you using the Bluetooth um, on board the microcontroller in the in the glove. Like you can make it talk to um, MIDI, um, which means that you can actually make it control like professional music software like Ableton Live or you know GarageBand or whatever. So these things are like. You know, it's really important for me to have something that's super open-ended and super kind of expansive. So it's like, here, you just give you a push on the on the um, on the starting line, and then you just kind of like, you just watch them roll down the hill. You know, yeah. it's, it's 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 really important. So that 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 kind of comes to the the second question that I wanted to ask you that you touched on, which is demystifying technology. Mm. Um, and you know, it seems like a lot of um, you know the educational stuff that you're talking about. Uh, you know, is, is geared towards, um, you know, making things like you were, you know, low floor, high ceiling, making things more accessible, helping people understand things. But what is it about? Um, why, why do you think it's important to to do this, to, to demystify technology for, for other people? What's the, um, you know, what's the reason for all of that? I would say, so to me, it's kind of like literacy, right? Um, in that, not everybody is going to be a professional writer, but everybody should know how to read. And the same to me with technology and electronics and code. Not everybody's going to become a software developer or a hardware product designer, but we should know what is inside these things that are part of every single person's lives. We should know, we should be able to look at something and go, I get it, I know what that is. I feel empowered to be able to either fix it, to hack it, to take control of the technology that's in my life. You know, we mm. need to build digital literacy, and that includes electronics. Um, we are becoming, you know, very much a culture of people who just get, you know, purchase these shiny electronics and their perfect casings, and, you know, then they've got their built-in obsolescence. And actually, you know, 
if we've got enough digital literacy, we should be able to say, you know, that's not okay. You know, we need to be able to take control of the devices there in our lives and, and increasingly so much part of our lives. You know, so if, yeah, for me, it's about building literacy um, and, and part of that is demystification. Um, but, but also it's because it's fun, because it's, because it's really good fun to look at something and go, I know how to make that. I, I, could, I can control it. It's just really empowering. It kind of stops you from feeling, you know, like you don't know anything about the things in your life. So I was, I was talking with a, um, an amateur, uh, a, a guy who'd been an amateur radio operator for, you know, the better part of half a century. And um, he mentioned when he first started learning amateur radio, uh, there was a lot of, ex- there was a lot of surplus um, uh, components because it was right after the, the second world mm. war actually. Mm. So he was able to go out and, and grab different components and there were kits to make your own radio then too. So, so amateur radio operators very much knew what was inside of the the machines that they were using, um, and then and then uh, components start getting less expensive. Um, you know, in, integrated circuits came along, mm-hmm. and really what happened was the, the the market got flooded by all of these radios that you didn't have to make. They were cheaper than the kits and and so forth. Um, and so and so amateur radio operators moved from. Um, a, a large group of people who understood the the electronics and in, in the tools that they use um, to to people who you know kind of work on top of these systems and I'm I'm beginning to draw analogs here anyways between mm. some of the things that you're saying and 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 some of the things that he's talking about in that um, he was emphasizing that the literacy the understanding of the radios was was almost just as important as using them uh, absolutely as, as well absolutely and and, and it. it, it, it but as we we you know technology gets le- less and less expensive and, and more integrated, how how do we continue to emphasize the um, the importance of of understanding how things work, of of understanding how all these things work when it's so easy just to go out there and and buy a you know a cell phone or a radio or or, or what what have you. Um, well, and, and not have to understand it. Actually, so that there is, there is. A, so I live next to this, really close to this amazing makerspace called Cobacant. It's probably, I'd say, the most inspiring place in the world for e-textiles. Um, and they have a really interesting philosophy um, that really inspires me. They think that in the future, um, electronics will not be mass-produced. It will be um, handmade and boutique. So they are ima- in their makerspace, they're imagining this future where actually it's, um, it's all decentralized, it's all um, handmade, and um, everything is kind of custom and boutique to each person. Um, very much kind of like, you know, a lot of the people who are super into 3D printing think, you know, like distributed manufacturing is the, is the word a lot of people use. Um, so, so perhaps, perhaps um, you know, we might be um, seeing individual chips made um, by um, machines in our, in our local neighborhood. Um, maybe we won't, um, but it's, it's quite a fun thing to imagine, the idea of electronics becoming handmade again. Um, and and um, if anybody's in Berlin, I would absolutely recommend going to see that space. It's truly inspirational. Um, just some amazing electronic work, like handmade electronic works of art. Incredible. I mean, that's a really interesting speculative mm-hmm. uh, future kind of exercise. I wonder how much of that, you know, kind of to shift gears here a little bit too, how much of that is um, is is driving some of what you've, you're writing about in uh, The Crafty Kid's Guide to DIY Electronics? I, I, I want to 
give you some time to talk about that as well, because that seems like it could, you know, have the potential to be a project where, where you're talking about, um, you know, the same things that you were just mentioning, you know, integrating craft mm. with electronics and that kind of future where, where things are, are more handmade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the joy of handmade will never leave us. I mean, you know, we can talk about um, the maker movement in inverted commas. We can talk about um, in terms of 3D printing, in terms of modern day microcontrollers and electronics. But, you know, the truth is that making is a human activity, no matter what that making thing is. You know, I think um, the, the word making has kind of become a, a you know, it's, it's a buzzword, really. I mean, what does it really mean? It's just doing something with an outcome, right? Whether something in the physical world. Well, you know, what's it to say that my cousin who, um, you know, does, uh, who's a builder, like, how is his work any different to my work? You know, like, he's probably a lot more physically skilled than me, but I'm, I'm a maker and he's not. Um, or, or my dad, who um, worked in communications in the army, and um, actually he was pretty cool. He made spy devices during the Cold War. Um, but like you know, the kind of stuff that he was doing—that was you know what would have been termed um, elect, you know, would have been termed making now. And I got me thinking about like what makes what makes making making, and what what, what differentiates it from craft, what differentiates it from art. Um, and I read I read this amazing book, which I recommend to everybody, um, called The Subversive Stitch. And it's a feminist history of embroidery um, and how it became seen as women's work. It didn't used to be gendered at all. Um, before the Victorian era, it was very much, um, you know, it was, it was a profession, right, that was done by, done by men and women. And it kind of got, like, tangled up with this idea of femininity um, um, once the Industrial Revolution kind of um, mechanized and the mm. you know sewing and so on um and it just made me kind of really think about like how we term things um and you know like what why would I, you know i like embroidery as well as soldering um why is why can i get paid to do one of them and not paid to do the other one um why is one of them valued to be taught in schools and the other one not um, well, you know, as we were just saying earlier, like not everybody's going to become an electronics engineer. We don't need that many electronics engineers. So what is it really that we're teaching? Well, you know, in my opinion, a lot of the stuff that we're teaching is hand-eye coordination, um, the ability to uh, get something wrong and try again. Um, we are teaching um, fine uh, motor skills. Um, we're teaching the ability to follow a pattern, um, the ability, you know, the, video to, uh, the ability to follow instructions. Well, all of those things can be taught by either of these things. And we've got to question why it is that we're valuing one kind of human activity above the other. And actually, I think you'll find the answer very much in gender and class um, and mm. also heritage as well. Um, it, it's just, you know, I'm not saying that about the answer. I mean, and I, and I, and I absolutely, yeah, right. and I, but it's, it's really, to me, it's important to look critically at why we value certain things and why we don't value certain things and also why we're teaching certain things and why we're not teaching other things. Um, mm. You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating for banning coding and bringing back um, needlework, <laughs> but right. um, I just, I just kind of, you know, I, I think, I think craft has a, a place um and uh, an important place um in in education but also you know it's joyful i mean you know i know so many of my friends who run needle groups or um knit and actually knitting is 
you know, 3D printing before 3D printing was 3D printing. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I read this amazing article the other day. It was really cool. It was about um, how um, female spies in World War II would like code secret messages mm-hmm. into right. um, their scarves by knitting, purling, dropping stitches. And of course, they look completely innocuous as well. So um, right. I just thought like, oh, that's so cool. You know, you don't really think about that. But, you know, knitting is code as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, basically it was my, I'd been thinking, this had been percolating in my mind for a little while and I was just like, okay, this is interesting kind of, but what happens? And, and as I've said in, earlier in this podcast, you know, like I really like mashing up two genres and seeing what happens. Um, so I thought, Hey, what would happen if I wrote a children's book about craft that was all about electronics? Um, so I pitched it to McGraw-Hill and um, they really liked it so I wrote it (laughs) Hmm. Um, (laughs) um, but actually craft and electronics is like huge now I mean we've got so many cool um, things on the market you know that are really cheaply available like you've got some really great e-textiles like I mean you can do so much with just some conductive thread and a bit of fabric you know it's like Embroidered circuitry is so cool and it looks awesome as well. Like it's just, I don't know, I just think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, so I started thinking, you know, like craft is quite big in children's stuff. Um, and maybe there's a way of getting to the unusual suspects by using craft as an entryway into electronics. Um, mm. And maybe I'll find some kids who might be interested in electronics, but will learn sewing or, you know, vice versa. So I was like, let's give it a go. Um, and what I found was, yeah, there's lots of people who are super excited about it. Um, and um, it's, it's actually a really nice, tangible way of teaching about circuitry. Like, you, you can see where your circuit is going. You literally put it there. You know, it's not some kind of, like, it's not a mystery. You can literally see what's happening. Um, you know, so I, it's, I'm finding it a really nice way of teaching the basic concepts of electronics. So, so what's, what's interesting, I'm connecting kind of, you, you, you know, you, the book seems to be emblematic of the way that you teach your workshops. I'm wondering, um, how, but I'm, I'm sure you spoke with other people as you were developing this and, um, and, you know, some of those people maybe, you know, were they in traditional classrooms and things of that nature? I wonder how much, um, craft you see happening in the traditional classroom right now, um, is is because it seems like you you see a need for for more of it perhaps um is is there a lack of it is there an abundance of it what's happening i mean craft craft you you get craft um in in the younger classrooms it's just not kind of given the same kind of prestige um not yeah i mean actually i did write the book with a huge advisory board um so i did get a lot of input throughout the whole thing so i didn't choose a single project in the whole book um, I put a call out on Twitter last year um, um, for people to join my, like girls of, of a certain, of, you know, of a certain age, to join my advisory board, um, and I got like over, I think it was two hundred, two hundred and fifty girls um, on my advisory board, and I sent, wow. them, I sent them a between the ages of seven and thirteen, um, and I sent them a questions and um for each of the chapters i sent them out like a huge list of ideas then they would vote on the ideas and all of their top ideas are all of the projects in the book they chose everything everything like the Mm. book would not have been the same without them i mean it's good for me as well because it keeps me 
you know, current. <laughs> like I'm not an eight year old girl anymore. Um, so um, it's, right. um, it's good. It's good for me to keep my finger on the pulse of like what kids actually think is cool. Um, so, so uh, but something else that I got from that um, was that these people, these girls are a lot more confident in craft than they are in electronics. They're super interested in electronics, but they really want to take that first step. Um, and something I find, you, you probably find this in your classrooms as well, is um, when you're teaching a new skill, um, it's really helpful to put it in the context of something that they're already familiar with. You know, so if they're already good at sewing, then let them use that skill to learn about something new. Um, it puts them, it's like, oh, I can do this bit. So it's only one extra thing more. Whereas if you're like, bam, here, have some wires and start coding, you're going you're gonna to terrify them um, a lot of the time. And particularly with girls of a certain age, they don't have a lot of confidence and they get scared off quite easily. So um, not all of them. I don't want to generalize at all. You know, like I'm a fairly untypical um, human woman. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like, as are we all, we're all, we're all strange in our own particular way, aren't we? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so basically I, I, find, I find that it really works um, to encourage them, to make them feel safe. So changing one thing at a time allows them to retain a sense of confidence and learn a new skill. Um, So that seems to be working pretty well. Um, I I think it's, it's also interesting that you had, um, you you said seven to 13 or eight to 13 uh, year old kids pick your projects, which Mm -hmm. seems like a very playful thing to do as well, because you're, you're, you're not just asking them to play with, you know, the, the craft or the technology, mm-hmm. but they're actually playing with, in a, in a way, kind of the curriculum. They're yeah. playing, you know, you're, you're, you're engaging them. But they make um, it, they yeah. love it. They feel so empowered by it. And, you know, and for me, like I'm sat on my own in, well, I, wrote, I moved to Berlin just before I started, I uh, moved to Berlin to write the book. And basically I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language. Um, I very impetuously like up sticks and um, moved to Berlin after having only been there <laughs> once in my life before, about eight years before. Um, and and I was just, honestly, like I was there going, I'm really lonely and I don't know anyone. And I'm just going to message all these girls. And they would send me all these lovely messages back. And it felt, it made me, honestly, it got me through like some, uh, some, like my first my first couple of months in Berlin, like messaging them and they messaged back and I felt like, you know, hey, I'm I'm here, I'm doing something good. Um, and these girls are super excited and they were really impacted. I got me- I got messages from their parents telling me how much they look forward to think, you know, people came up to me at, at nerd festivals and they're like, We need a selfie of you for my daughter, like she'll kill me. She knew she found out that you're here. Please can I get a picture? And I'm like, you know, I feel I feel like there's this little community of like of buddies and we we got our way through this book and like actually the my in the acknowledgements i i spend quite a lot of time talking to to my advisory board and saying like how rad they were um and how you know <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same without them so you know it was genuinely yeah. genuinely an aspiring thing to do but, but also you know this kind of feeds back into my the way that I design my products and my projects um, is very much kind of user-centered. So this kind of circles back, right back to the beginning when I talk about kind of design. Um, You know, when you're making something for somebody, do you not think it might be a good idea to, you know, ask their opinion? 
right? <laughs> like everyone's like, oh, wow, that's really unusual. I'm like, yeah, but why? <laughs> like right. ask, ask the people, ask them. Like, I mean, when I, when I was designing the Minimu, I went into classrooms at every stage and was designing it with children at every stage. And um, when I'm designing something for a school or, you know, designing, designing a product, um, I, I do it with the people, not for the people. Yeah, um, and they take it so seriously. Like you go into a, a school and you're like, this is a prototype. You are going to give all of your opinions and you're going to make this into a real product. They're like, oh my God, yeah, please. I, they get so serious and they write you all their notes up and they're like, this, you've got a spelling error here, you know, and like they type it up and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it just makes my job easier. But also it's nice. It's nice for them and it's nice for you. And, and at least you've got that validation. It's like a feedback loop, isn't it? You know? Iterative design, y'all. Right. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's a good contrast to um, some students might come into design school and, you know, in their undergraduate careers and think of design as, you know, like a more paternalistic approach where totally. you, the, the designer as, as, you know, agent unto themselves and they make a thing and then they yeah, release yeah, it yeah. to the world without. Wah, wah. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how we get Vic for her, boys and girls. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just made a sad trombone noise on a podcast. No, there we go. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to get. I'll have to put that on a soundboard for, for future episodes. Um, <laughs> we'll get a clean uh, take afterwards if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, I like. I, I like the. I like the way that you approach um, that you're approaching education and design and the development of things um, playfully. And I want to put a pin as well before I, I jump into that. And in, in, you were talking about um, how, how you'd moved and, and getting having a community of, of, of kids um, to, to kind of talk with was was you know in, in helpful. But before I jump into that, I, I want to talk a little bit about because I think before this we were talking about how play. You said play and making were kind of two sides of the same mm. coin, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I have personal you know interest in in that topic. But what is it about um, playfulness that that you think is is important to making for you know for these kids that you're working with, but but also for you um, well, and 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 the process uh, that you know you adopt when you're when you're making things. Well, play is how we learn. You know, yeah. when we're yeah tiny children, tiny babies, like we play act everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and by removing it from play, you're going to lose people. I think especially, I, no, I'm, I'm actually going you know, to take that back, especially when they're younger. No, absolutely not. You know, like I play with my undergraduates. I play with my postgrads. You know, we go out right. and we, we have fun and we experience the world in a joyful manner. And it opens your mind. Um to new experiences and makes you see things and makes you learn things in a different way. Like to me, play is fundamental to learning. Absolutely. It's exploration. Um, and it makes you see things in a deeper way. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and making is the same thing. So, I mean, it, to me, they're kind of a similar approach to education, right? Um, in that it's not consuming education and kind of like trying to remember things. It's, it's about, Learning how to do things by experimentation, by exploration, by play, they're all the same. They're all the same. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, our, in my experience, it makes learning better. 
Um, mm. And even if it doesn't, so what? It's way cooler. So the de- design process is not, I wouldn't say entirely rigid, but it mm. is in some ways, you know, there is an iterative process mm-hmm. to it, which in some ways contrasts, I think sometimes with, with play and, and that play is, is, is less process oriented and, and more about exploring uncertainty. And I wonder how you, you know, in, in your own work, um, or, or do you balance those two things out, the, the playfulness and the exploration with the need to apply a process to something to, to complete a project at some point? Well, absolutely. Um, you need yeah. both. You know, you absolutely need both. I mean, I, I play, well, I'm not talking about like skipping around and not doing anything. I'm talking about right. a, a playful state of mind. Um, and you can be process driven and playful. Absolutely. Mm. Um, but also, yeah, you, you've got to have, especially, you know, as you get older and you get more serious about the things that you're doing, you need to have uh, process, but you need to have, you need to approach your process with, with a playful state of mind, um, mm. in order to get the best results. Um, in, in, I mean, yeah, it's a balance. Of course, everything's a balance. You can't just like skip around all day. Right. Or, you know, I, sometimes I do, but. No, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I very, I, I very much view kind of that. That is, a, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting um, dichotomy in that, uh, you, you know, I, I personally think, at least in the U.S., a lot of K twelve education is, uh, is about taking tests these days, and mm-hmm. it's process, uh, very process oriented, um, and and lacks the kind of craft and playfulness, you know, that that we're talking about. That's because um, it's not about the child. Right, right, right. It's about uh, creating somebody who who can complete uh, a, a task well in an industrial of society. Of course, um, but but anyways, I digress. So so it's just an interesting um, balance uh, because certainly, as, as you said, it's 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 necessary um, when you get more serious about the things that you're doing to be able to complete them. But but it's also necessary to kind of retain some of that 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 playfulness and and so it's interesting to hear you talk about that you know and i'm sure that's uh, in in your book and in in the classes that you teach as well um you know you, you it's almost like you must feel like the the catcher in the rye sometimes you know where you're, you're kind of i hate that um, <laughs> <laughs> you're such a whiny little <laughs> sorry exclusively yeah. so overrated yeah yeah, yeah. sorry so, no <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can move on from that then. Um, <laughs> because the, I think the last thing that I wanted to talk about is um, community. And, yes. you know, you, you mentioned moving to, to Berlin and having that community of, of kids that you were working with. But, but you also talked a little bit about some of the maker spaces that you're visiting, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and the, the, the craft spaces that you're visiting and how those provide some community as well. And I was wondering, you know, one of the things I like to talk about on this podcast is um, what is it about community that is um, vital, or is it is community vital to um, you know craft and creativity and making? Is it something that uh, that's that's necessary to your process as well, or um, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. Um, community is the most important thing um in my personal maker life so um i'm i'm not um i didn't go to university um i don't have a degree and i wasn't formally trained in um electronics it's something that i've learned over the process over the past 10 years 
um, you know, what would traditionally be called self-taught, but um, I always say that I'm not self-taught, I'm community-taught. Um, you know, my friend Phoenix taught me how to use an oscilloscope. Um, my friend in my first ever makerspace taught me how to use a soldering iron. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from YouTube, and I've learned a lot from W3Schools on the coding side. You know, so community without community for me, I would have none of the knowledge that I currently make a living from. Um, so that's the basis of my entire um, maker and electronics um, life is is community um, learning. Um, and also, on top of that, I have in 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 all of my kind of like technical um, life. Um, all of it has always been centered around a community space. Um, I actually left London. I mean, I joke that like I'm an SKP from Brexit, which is kind of partially true. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't certainly didn't help. But actually, one of the biggest reasons for me leaving London was that my makerspace closed. Um, it was a wonderful space called Machines Room. Um, it was a mixture of electronics people, people who did like batch 3d printing um medical grade um open source um modular wheelchairs um furniture designers um, origami artists who sat next to me you know so they had all of these incredible people who were part of this community who were specialized in different materials um, and different processes and by being resident in that space i was able to expand my skills so much like i learned so much like if i was going to do a project with wood, <clears throat> I just turn around and be like, hey, Matt, what's the best way to deal with this particular type of wood with this particular, I want this particular kind of finish. And, you know, like we'd, we'd always make room for each other. We'd always help each other. It was not competitive. Um, it was truly collaborative. It was also pretty much like 50-50 boys and girls um, and like just people from all over the world were um, were part of that space. It was amazing. Um, but then because, you know, it's London, London's an extremely expensive city and they put the rent up three times and they had to close. Um, and I remember, you know, we had we had a bonfire um, and then we all went onto the roof of the space and cried because it was the end of an era and London's changed enormously. Like all the hacker spaces that I've been part of um, don't exist anymore um, in London. Um, which is actually a tragedy. I mean, there are hackerspaces in London. There's some lovely ones. Um, but I just didn't find anywhere that I particularly clicked with in the same way that Machine Stream did. And I heard from a lot of my music tech friends that Berlin was amazing in terms of the community, in terms of the spaces, and also in terms of the music technology, which um, I focus on. So I have sticks and moved here. Like, that is literally the biggest reason I left London. Mm. Um and so community is super important for me. Um, and, and I've joined, like, I've been flirting with a few different makerspaces in Berlin. And um, I've joined Seabase, as we spoke to earlier, which is absolutely insane. Obviously, they have this whole mythology around it. It's like a crashed spaceship. It's very strange. Um, <laughs> there's a, yeah, it's, it's if, every hacker, every hacker should go on a pilgrimage to Seabase at some point just to see where it comes from and be like, oh, what? is this oh my god it's very strange and a complete mess and i totally love it um, <laughs> and then also something a bit more functional and you know but it's it's um yeah community is is really for me the defining characteristic of what we call the maker movement um mm. everybody makes right every human makes um 
pretty much. Um, you know, whether that's um, something, uh, you know, like you get pride in doing your DIY or even in rolling a beautiful cigarette or, um, you know, making something in a factory. You, it's, it's something that you, you look at and think, yeah, I did that, right? But what makes the maker movement um, special are the spaces. And I think we should safeguard those spaces. It's so important to collective knowledge. I mean, there's this kind of like, there's this um, idea of the lone genius, which is so pervasive um, in throughout human history. You know, like you think of artists, you think of the individual artists, you think of engineers, you think of the individual engineers. But, you know, like Picasso didn't operate in a vacuum. His, com- his, his, um, his comrades and his competitors pushed him up. Right, they elevated his work. Brunel didn't occupy, didn't work in a vacuum. I'm sure he had friends who'd ring up and be like, "Oh, I'm having a, a real trouble with this piece of, um, with this piece of mathematics with this equation." You know, like we as workers, as human beings, we need community to raise our game. You know, um, mm. we we look at other people's work and we think, "Oh my god, that's amazing! What can I do?" You know, I mean, if you're anything like me, um, you'll you'll look at somebody else's work and you'll be like really inspired and slightly depressed by how awesome their work <laughs> is. And you're like, oh man, I've got to really up my game now. You know, so kind of like building on other people's works, so, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants thing. It's absolutely true. And the way that we the way that we um, encourage that is by creating these spaces and nurturing these spaces. I, I genuinely believe that community is the most important thing in the maker movement so you have you have these physical spaces mm. um i've also i've also found a lot of value in in um you know digital spaces mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. community spaces and you know I, I think both of them can have um some kind of influence uh you know on on each individual who's, who's you know engaged in them and making things but i wonder if if you could talk a little bit and i know you know i know you mentioned you know talking about um different materials like wood and, and, and bouncing ideas off of people and, and things of that nature. Uh, but when, when you were talking earlier about synthesizing disparate pieces of information and disparate fields, do you feel like these, these spaces, both digital and physical, um, are you drawn to them? Are, are they another way for you to synthesize information by exposing yourself to other ideas that um, that, that come out of people who, who have different backgrounds, who have different Definitely. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I often do um, short hacks with people that I know. Um, I mean, in fact, like, so in, in my home in Berlin, I've got like, I've made like a little um, maker space um, in one corner of my kitchen, um, which is, uh, which you'll see if you um, look at my YouTube channel, um, my little, my <laughs> tiny little maker space. Um, they and I get people over. Like I do, I do dinner every week for my neighbors and some other people as well. And so often I invite people over to work on projects. Um, my friend Andrew Hockey, um, he's a, a really cool um, music and sound artist. He's actually over for two days. He's brought a bag of stuff to hack on. We're going to make some capacitive touch um, instruments together um and i've invited a few other people over we're gonna have dinner tomorrow night with like um, a visual artist um and a coder and my next door neighbor johannes who um invented dada machines which are awesome you should definitely look at them they're like midi midi analog instruments like so you know by curating this kind of 
come over to Helen's house and hack. I am learning so much. There's like literally no way I'd just be able to do that or be motivated to do that um, without these people coming over and without kind of fostering this kind of like open home. Um, you know, it's to me, it's um, it raises my game. It totally raises my game. And it makes me way less lazy as well. Because if I know I've got friends coming over to hack, I'm like, mm, I should probably work on that project that I said I should be working on for ages. Hmm. Um, you know, and even if not, we'll just have a nice dinner. But it's, 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 it's totally imperative, totally imperative to, to my own practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, what's it, 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 the through line that I'm seeing is, is a lot of synthesis, whether it's instruments mm-hmm. right? and you have synthesizers too, but, mm-hmm. yes. but, but you know, the synthesis of, of uh, fields of practice, the synthesis mm-hmm. of ideas from other individuals um, seems like, uh, you know, a lot, what I'm taking out of this um, in part, at least, is is that uh, the the synthesis of all of the you know disparate pieces of of information and the synthesis of people is is critical to mm. uh, the practice of, of of making and perhaps play as well. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, and, and it doesn't have to just be in electronics as well. You can you can go and and take a walk and look at an art gallery or see something interesting on the street. Um, as long as you've got your eyes open and you're looking at things, like really looking at things, um, I think you can find um, inspiration um, and motivation in, in almost any walk of life. Like some of the, some of the coolest hacks I see are, are not based on the technology. Um, they, they, they come from inspiration first and technology second. Hmm. I think that is an excellent place to <laughs> to to stop. Um, so one of the things I like to do at the at the end of this is uh, you know give you opportunity, um, plug what you have coming out, and um, tell people where they can find you uh, on on the internet or, or anywhere else. Okay, um, so I'm probably most active on Twitter. I'm at Helen Lee L E I G H. Um, obviously, I have a book coming out this week. Um, so any anyone who's interested in learning how to sew with electricity or how to uh, make cool wearables, um, you know, you should uh, get that for all your nephews and nieces and children. Um, so I get the opportunity to write another book, please. <laughs> hmm. um, and also, yeah, of course, there's this um, mini new glove that's coming out. And we've tried to make it. I mean, something we didn't talk about um which I'll mention very briefly, is that I am a big believer in trying to make technology accessible to people from different incomes. So I've tried to make mm-hmm. these things as cheap as humanly possible. Like I audited my book and nothing in there cost over $10, uh, like for the whole make. Um, so it's really important to me to try and make it um, financially accessible. Um, and the, the, the minimum has been like stripped right back. So it's like, I don't know what it is in dollars, but it'll be like £39 for everything, including the micro- microcontroller. So um, I hope that you like that. Oh, yes. And also I have a YouTube channel, um, uh, which is Helen Lee, L-E-I-G-H, again. Um, and please forgive me. I'm very new to, to YouTube and I'm also a massive, awkward dork um, who doesn't know what to do with their hands. So please be gentle with me. But I'll be doing lots of um, um, kind of child friendly or beginner friendly videos on, you know, choosing and using different materials, different components and also um, my makes as well. Um, so, yeah, Twitter, YouTube, book, 
Nini Moo. Oh, also, I'm looking for residencies for next year. I'd love to come to the US a bit more. So if anybody has or knows of residencies or teaching opportunities, I'm um, down to travel. I spent a lot of last year um, doing residencies across China, um, and that was great fun. And I would absolutely love um, to come to the US um, a bit more next year. So um, if you hear of any residencies that might suit me, education or arts-based stuff, can you hit me up? That would be grand. <laughs> Super cool. Amazing. All right. Yeah. Helen, thank cool you so there. much. Yes, thank and... you. That was really fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening to This Should Work, episode 15, an interview with Helen Lee. Uh, next up is an interview that we're going to be doing with Christina Pei, uh, creator of the Northside Mini Maker Fair. Uh, maker educate, educator and um, an all-around excellent uh, human being. We also might even slide in a, a special podcast episode um, about uh, maker stuff, maker tools, kits, um, but not the, the kitschy things out there, the important stuff for Christmas. So um, stay tuned for that as well. Thanks to Helen for joining us this week. And um, as always, if you enjoy This Should Work, Uh, Subscribe, iTunes, SoundCloud, all those other places, and share with your friends. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.